Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm here at RMIT University and I'm presenting Talking Design. Welcome to the program. I'm here today with Professor Paul Goff, Pro Vice Chancellor and Vice President, uh, Design and Social Context at RMIT University in Melbourne. So welcome to the program, Paul. Hello there. Paul, you've had such a varied career and you're still obviously going. Um, <laughs> but um, it's very difficult to define you. You've, you're a painter, broadcaster, writer. You've done so much. If someone said, Paul, describe yourself in a couple of sentences, how do you normally describe yourself apart from being a Renaissance man? Ah, that's a good one. I'm, a, I'm an impure amalgam of many things, I think. Um, and what interests me, uh, coming from being an academic, um, is the interrelationship and I guess the interdependencies between a time I spend in the studio, a time I once spent in front of television cameras, a time I spend writing when I'm putting uh, academic articles or books together, and of course my work in the college at RMIT, and also I hope when I get a chance to see some students. I'm interested in the interrelationship between those things, mm -hmm. because... Uh, I guess it could be that I get bored quite quickly and want to move from one thing to the other, or... I can see that the synergies that one can achieve between those various parts that enrich the whole. Royal College of the Art is your starting point. Yep. And you could have just continued being a great painter. Why Why change? Um, I guess I was always interested in different challenges from different sources, from different areas. So, OK, I did uh, uh, a degree in fine art initially but was exposed i went to a wonderful um polytechnic as it was in the west midlands in the center of england and uh i learned there to work really hard I and mean, i always feel that i work hard but there there wasn't much else to do it was a bit of a rundown um uh part of the uk at the time and yet there were some wonderful teachers and i think if i could summarize my where i am now it's because i've been the benefit beneficiary of some fantastic teaching inspirational teachers and one of the best that i had there was not just the painting and the sculpting and the like it was a guy in cultural history um a sort of seminal figure of, of dick hebdige who did all the work around uh, uh, uh subcultures around the punk era about revolt into style and that i suppose stimulated a whole rain, range of thought partly what interests me now around design what period was there it was the late 70s yeah. so punk had just happened or was happening yeah. and there were a whole lot of sociologists uh, a lot of people associated with design seeing something quite radical happening in england in london but also in newcastle in manchester in birmingham in wolverhampton all over this strange outburst of a sort of anti pop that appeared mm. and these sociologists were coming back into the art schools and saying look at this it's it's very real it's very english it's happening now mm. and it generated such a great deal of enthusiasm in me and not that i was interested in punk necessarily but it was a fact that it was saying there's something happening we can ask questions about about it and we can come up with some solutions that might not be visual might be textual and i guess it was at that point there that i realized that i could carry on painting and drawing and i went on to london to do that but also there were some things you couldn't paint about you could write and you could critique about and i was interested in how one could possibly open up that area of of, of kind of academic exploration mm -hmm. so the interrelationship between being a painter on one hand but then, after my time at the Royal College of Art in the painting school, I did a PhD there, because I guess that the PhD asked questions that couldn't be identified or couldn't be answered in the studio. They had to be identified and answered through the, the written word. 
Mm. It's interesting, Paul, because now that whole punk 80s thing's coming back, there's exhibitions yep. around the world. Yep. So you must be looking at it saying deja vu. <laughs> but there's major exhibitions at, yeah. uh, at the V&A at the moment. It's just been yep. fashion exhibitions yep. on the 80s. Sure. What do you think that period did generally... Well, it kind of threw everything upside down. I mean, look at the, the sheer demand at the moment in the V&A for the Bowie exhibition. Mm, Amazing. I couldn't get a ticket. You know, I couldn't get in. Queues around the corner. Uh, it's just phenomenal. So I guess there is a sense... Uh, I mean, nostalgia is an interesting kind of uh, a topic. One could talk about it for a long time. But it does revisit something that was actually quite pure. I mean, here's a time in when I grew up in England where there were only two television channels. So mm. everyone spoke about the same... Subjects. In fact, last night, incredibly, in an absence of thinking, what music should I listen to? I went on YouTube and I found um, a Radio One program that I list- used to listen to in the um, late seventies, and thought, "What am I doing here? Here I am <laughs> in Melbourne <laughs> in my fifties, now revisiting something. Is there a gap? Is there something that's not being well, addressed now?" Paul, do you think this continual going back has been happening for years? Um, is a lack of direction at the moment, that people are insecure and they're continually going back, that, you know, we're up to the 80s and we're going into the 90s soon, and it's just continually trying to... Is it lacking confidence at the moment? It may well be. Uh, The the zeitgeist is one of lack of confidence. Um, But not so... If you go back to the 70s with the oil crisis, or you go into the 80s with some of the kind of the Reagan years and the like, there have always been times of of crisis. Uh, Every... Every few years I'm in higher education and I've been involved in higher education for 30 years now. I'm always presented with people saying, this is the big crisis. And I say, well, actually, 10 years ago we said we had the big crisis. Mm -hmm. Actually, we're very good at coping. And I think universities are very good Mm -hmm. at coping. And uh, the role of leaders is to manage that crisis, Mm -hmm. actually, is to kind of, um, is to put a hold on it and to see one's way through and see over the horizon. So... um, Going back to the Royal College of Art and yeah. picking up some of the some of the questions there, what was fantastic about the Royal College of Art? It was the ultimate meritocracy. Here's a place with 500 students got in there on their merits, got in there through portfolio uh, and interview, and I'm there with some of the best painters who've gone on to be fantastic painters in the same studios where the likes of David Hockney had been. I could go into I knew people in furniture design, in environmental design, in automotive design. The guys that were making stuff in automotive design, I used to look at it and think you must be out of your mind. No one's going to buy a car like that. And then a few years later, you see it driving up the road and everyone's in them. So they were pushing at the edge there, pushing at the envelope in terms of design. They had some of the most leading professional practitioners there. It was a very exciting time. It was very competitive. Um, This was in the the mid-80s in London and I stayed there till the early 90s. Very competitive, um, very ambitious, a kind of fearlessness about London at the time, which meant that some of my colleagues in textiles Design could set up their own um, club, the Wag Club in London, uh, or they they developed a, their own brand, the cloth, for instance. And I remember seeing these people thinking that it's hugely adventurous. Mm-hmm. These are guys and 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 young female students in their twenties suddenly saying we're going to take the world by storm. So there was that, and there was the international presence, and it was it was Paul, rather do you beautiful. Think, Paul, do you think we're coming back to that period where there are small studios everywhere and people saying, look, we'll just jump into the deep end, or do you think it's just getting too hard for young creatives to start on their own now. No, I think this is the time. I mean, I'm only speaking from the UK example, but 
there was a there was a wonderful story when Tony Blair was in government, and he had his backbenchers and the opposition saying to him, "We need a big debate. We need a big debate." Um, and they were saying, "Let's have a debate about shipbuilding." And he was saying, "There is no shipbuilding left in the UK. Let's have a debate about design." And they say, "Design? Why does why debate design?" Well, actually, there was a huge. Uh, activity in the small medium-sized enterprise and in the micro businesses in design to the point where actually in creative industries in the UK over the last few years there is greater turnover greater employment and a huge uh, sort of international uh, esteem game going on greater than the the aviation industry mm -hmm. but no one would believe you mm -hmm. so all the people that I graduated with a lot of my students that I taught in the UK and I can see it here in Melbourne have that kind of capability to go out and say, I'm going to set up my own company. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to uh, get an accountant. I'm going to get a bit of space. I'm going to make this work. And that sort of bravado I saw played out in all the metropolitan cities in the UK and a more power to them. Okay. Um, it's interesting because you've done so much. I'm trying to include something from everything, but... Um I love the quote that I, I read saying, um, our cities are hopelessly over-furnished by mm. bad quality public art and even worse, <laughs> irrelevant uh, sculptures to uh, long-dead war heroes. Um, the British and the wider Western world is wracked by the fear of being forgotten. Mm. I think it's, um, and, and you think that, you know, other better ways of, of creating a memory of war is to, to give to festivals, to do a festival, to provide yeah. other other venues for sure. this type of thing. It's quite a brave move because a lot of people are very devoted to their yeah. heroic sculptures yeah. in their parks. Heroes and horsebacks, yeah. Um, I guess uh, my PhD uh, was about war art. It started off about that. It was more or less saying in the First World War with uh, the kind of the sheer weight of firepower that was available on the Western Front the, the role of the figure of the human being vanished. They had to go underground. So how do you present through the landscape the sheer enormity and violence on the Western Front? So it was a, land, it was a, a, a thesis about emptiness. Out of that, over the last 10, 15 years, I've done a lot of writing, and I'm interested in how you how we remember those who are now long gone and what are our, our sort of the icons uh, in our cities. And it seemed to me in the 20s and 30s in the UK and in Western Front and around the northern, northern France and Belgium and certainly in Gallipoli and Macedonia, huge outpouring of symbolic sculpture, uh, mostly in the form of obelisks and uh, you know, great stones, all written up with the, the high diction of remembrance, you know, the big words. In fact, it's said that in uh, the 1920s there, was a, there were more obelisks put up across France and Belgium than there were in the whole of Pharaonic Egypt. So extraordinary amount of stone being placed there. 30, 40, 50 years later, those stones are still there. And, but now you're seeing the last 10 years that with the kind of uh, democratization of memory, that everyone has their own history, that everyone can access the 1901 census, the 1910 census, that there's a huge amount of uh, interest in genealogy that people can find out about their individual roots. Everyone wants a part of it. So everyone wants to play back their own history and their own roots. And that's a, that's a hugely important thing, I guess, in Australia. Um, so... 
when I go back and look at Western Front or Gallipoli or whatever, you start seeing the whole landscape be overfurnished. The quality of stone masonry now, the quality、mm. of design and the carving, isn't great,、mm. and yet we're still seeing a, 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 everywhere you look, you're getting、um, a memory bank of pretty grim,、mm. um, very banal sculpture. What's, what's also <laughs> very interesting, we're getting huge numbers of remembrance organisations, ex-servicemen's leagues, etc., who are very honourable, and I have no problem with what they're、mm. trying to do. What's happening, particularly in the UK, is that <clears throat> remembrance organisations are starting to put memorial benches and wreaths and memorial stones, not to soldiers, not to combatants who fell in the First World War, but actually to members of committees and、um, those who volunteered to be part of remembrance groups.、Mm-hmm. It's a very strange kind of、uh, legacy of remembrance. So I, I go along to a To a place of of esteemed memory to Australians, say at Potsieres in France, and on a little kind of bench there it says, "In memory of the treasurer of this association that remembered the First World War." And I'm thinking that's a kind of curious step, isn't it?、Mm. <laughs> They're remembering groups and representatives in groups who are about memory. So we are transfixed by memory. I think memory is the new makeover. History has overtaken、uh, gardening programs、uh, in terms of, of documentaries、mm. and the like because we're so. Fascinated, Paul. The other thing you have been very involved in is、uh, documentaries in London. Yeah, and I was talking to you before we sat down. I said, you know, I think the level of discussion on design,、mm. architecture, design is fairly、mm. low generally.、Mm. I think in London and in in Australia, I don't think it's. Why is it that we dumb down design? Is it? Do you think that we feel it's too elitist, or people, or it's just the whole idea of everyone can do it? You know, you don't need to be an expert, and anyone can do it. There is some of that. I think that a lot of television now has to fall into one or two、uh, rather transcribed formats. One is、um, that everyone could be an expert with a little bit of help, you know, an overnight kind of makeover. Or the other one is that everything's turned into a kind of race and a game show.、Mm-hmm. So archaeology programs aren't about duration. They aren't about careful and slow examination of, of evidence. They're about Racing against time, they're against racing against time. Must get this done. Must get this done. So it adds and injects a level of kind of pace that isn't necessarily the needed in design programs. It's fixated usually on cost, or it's fixated on problems. I'm thinking of architectural design programs. They're good television, but they're about compressing time onto a, a 25 minute or a 45 minute、um, slot, and they're about Uh, they like to veer on the edge of catastrophe and crisis, you know.、Mm. So there's this constant air of scepticism, rather than a design, you know, a pipeline that we're used to: origination,、mm. discussion,、uh, f- prototyping,、mm. proof of concept, testing in the market. All those kind of interesting stages that lead to something quite extraordinary,、mm. especially the, the the genesis of a design idea, where you th- put ideas that might seem so improbable together that you might lose. A, a television audience within seconds, but those are the wonderful,、uh, difficult, and tangible moments to capture,、mm-hmm. aren't they? Did you find, Paul, that you were continually battling with producers to elevate I, the discussion? I, I made about f- for ten years. I worked in television, both as a presenter, as a associate producer, as a researcher,、um, and often working in in formats where we had twenty、um, five minute to thirty minute debate around a topic. So I'd do three of those a day, and I'd have to move. 
in the morning from um, archaeological. Oh God, dance and disability through to authenticity and natural history filmmaking, through to you know what I mean. I move very very quickly, so you, you mug up quite quickly. The problem, I enjoyed it enormously. It was a tremendous privilege. I met some great people, some wonderful designers, um, who were very, very good at articulating in words what actually they're used to <laughs> describing in pencil, paper, mm. you know, whatever, um, or, or on computers. Uh, and they did their best to articulate for television's sake, or often on radio, worked a bit on radio as well, what is actually a, a, a tangible visual medium. The problem in television generally, in the media generally, is uh, two things, really. One is that they're terrified of being overtaken by the amateur through social media, that mm -hmm. anyone can make this, that uh, content is king, people will go anywhere for content, irrespective of whether it's on pay channel, mm -hmm. YouTube, Flickr or whatever. And the other one is that they're fixated on ratings. So when I was working in television, I was also working full-time in higher education. Higher education <laughs> is fixated by evaluation by looking to the past and making sure we're doing it right in case we get inspected. Television doesn't look to the past at all. It looks to ratings and then says, what's the next best idea? So I was working in one area that is constantly looking over its shoulder, thinking, my God, we're going to get caught. Quality, quality. <laughs> and the other was thinking, oh, not enough people, only six million people saw that last night. That's no good. What's the next one? You know, yeah. so, um, throw a, it, throw it a divorce in. Yeah, quite. <laughs> divorce and design. Now, there's a topic for you. Paul... Another area that's very interesting, and you've written a book on, um, and I'm very fond of his work, is Banksy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting, uh, Melbourne has very few Banksies. I think mm. we only had one, and uh, that was in Flinders Lane, and the council thought they would cover it with perspex and they'd do the right thing, but they unfortunately didn't cover the top of the perspex covering, so silver paint was just poured down. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of the journalists from a paper said, well, you know, bad luck, you know, Banksy would have thought that was fine. Um, you know, it's part of the process. I was quite disturbed by that. Uh, I was really disturbed by the fact that we had such a precious piece of work. Um, what's your take on it? Banksy. An interesting topic, really. Um, I, I, I put the book on Banksy together for several reasons, really. I guess a number of research questions came out of, of Banksy, um, and it seemed like... Uh, as I said earlier on, I can sometimes when I'm drawing, I was drawing this weekend, there's only certain things can be drawn. Um, the book on Banksy came about because it was impossible to draw the kind of line of inquiry I had. And so I was asking the key research questions about Banksy. Um, not who is he, what is he doing, but I primarily focused on a big exhibition that he put on, which I think was a move towards respectability. I think a great many of these artists, urban artists now, street artists, whose work is vulnerable, and yet whose work is also stolen and sold at grossly inflated prices, and whose work is constantly contested by other rival gangs, perhaps it gets a bit tiresome after a while, because, you know, um, there is an anxiety of erasure. You do want legacy built into your art after investing so much time into it. And so I've, I started asking a series of questions, really, about... What, what's happening next in Banksy's work? Uh, where could it go here? Um, these massive exhibitions that he's uh, that he's put together, often in clandestine situation and format, um, how do they happen? What was the impact on the city they were held in? What was the impact on his own process as a, as a stenciler and as an artist? What were the wider cultural impacts? So those questions start to need a particular form. And, uh, and the book came out of that. Uh, and it was a great journey. Difficult, actually, very difficult. Did you manage to contact Banksy? Or? Okay, so there were, there were two questions I were asked whenever I talk about Banksy. One is, uh, did you meet him? 
Mm. And the second one is, does he know you're writing this book? And the first one I said, how would I know if I'd met him? Um, and what could I tell you? Because one's sworn to certain levels of secrecy. And the second thing was about, why, why should he be bothered? I'm putting together this book. Despite the fact that we did speak to Banksy's people and say, this is the first serious book that takes Banksy uh, at heart as a, an artist, written by me as an academic, but also as an artist. The interesting thing, of course, is uh, the question, is Banksy a he? So I always had to be careful it wasn't a, it could have been a he, a she, or a they, because I think there's a lot of people involved. And although we put the book together and had some cooperation, towards the end, things became rather sticky, actually. Because right towards the end, just as me and the publisher I was working with put together the book, this rather wonderful book that we have here, um, Banksy's people and, and his office is called Pest Control Office, and they're very, very kind of assertive about their, uh, their rights, they came back and said, do you have permission to reproduce in that book all of the images uh, that folk have taken in the galleries, and we were stunned. We were absolutely perplexed. So what do you do in that situation? Well, partly you say, hold on, you're a public artist, you work in the urban domain, uh, everyone's been taking photographs of you, the internet's crowded with zillions of photographs of your work, and now you're saying you have a, a, a copyright issue? So there were some tense negotiations. All was done in proxy, um, from um, never directly, so I was never sure where Banksy was in London or in LA or New York, and eventually we resolved it. But I realised that he, again, this comes back to his motivation, and I'm saying he yeah. knowingly. So, for instance, word comes back, um, and, and the question to us, does Damien Hurst know you're using that for your front cover? Has his team, his office, which are called Science, have they approved that front cover? And the original front cover was one of Banksy's rats with a little uh, paint pot painting out um, one of Damon Hurst's spot paintings. So the publisher and I thought, what does he mean by that? I don't think he means what he says he means. Again, it's all, all at an angle. What he means is, that front cover's got too much Damien Hurst and not enough Banksy. So we, we, we understood that as such and went back and said, here's four different front covers. Which one do you prefer? Well, the one that's on the front cover is actually quite delightful. It's a statue of an angel with a bucket of paint on her head and the pink paint is dripping down her torso. It's quite delightful. Banksy, the, Briti the Bristol legacy. <laughs> Very uh, humorous. Yeah, so he came, they came back again by indirectly and said, Banksy likes that front cover, but he doesn't like the stencil of his name and he's going to produce you a better one. And we thought, great, this is an endorsement here. Uh, the three other covers we put to one side, so we chose that one there. And then, again, a message back from his people saying, we've read the book, we think it's intelligent and well-written. I thought, I can retire on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been out ever since. But the main problem we faced is that um, after there being nothing on Banksy for quite some time, yeah. two other books appeared. And it's a bit like uh, a publisher. It's the worst nightmare for a publisher. Because it comes You design this book, you design the cover, you design all the process. Yeah. You have, you've designed a, um, a marketing campaign, and the next minute there are two people. One was a kiss-and-tell book, and one was a book written by a journalist. Very good book. Uh, we, he and I both shared a Sunday Times journalist, and he and I both shared a platform at various events. So 
the Banksy book's a bit of an, an anomaly in my um, Could, uh, can I ask genre. You, um, Paul, what do you think he would have thought about the, the silver paint being thrown over his work? What would he have thought? Um, I'm interested, because people say, well, that's part of the process. That's his, his part of his, his art. Yeah, I think he'd have shrugged and said, um, you know, I'll, either I'll get my revenge, because he, he does cold revenge very well, apparently, or he just thinks that's the nature of the dynamic I'm involved in. And that might pushing him further and further to a, to a time where he thinks, I'm going to do something that is a bit more permanent. Um, remember, he was putting his own artwork into the British Museum, into MoMA in New York, into Met in New York. He was starting to place his work in galleries. He now knows that the British Library and the British Museum and the V&A have big collections of his work. So he has that status of an accepted uh, sort of artist in collections. Last few years, uh, 23 of his pieces sold for 600,000 um, US dollars. Big money. Yeah. Um, so he would have said, that's the nature of the street, and I accept that. Yeah. I guess, it, at one level, it's quite commendable that any organisation in the city felt it the right to cover them in perspex. But there's a game going on there in any major city. It's almost drawing attention to it. It is, but it's also, many people still see this as vandalism, as, a, as an onslaught against innocent buildings. And why should a Banksy stencil of a rat with a parachute be any more better than some tag that I see out in Fitzroy? You know, and I, I find tagging odd. I can see why it's there. And one of the images that I reproduce in my lectures shows um, a tagger with an aerosol. And on his face, he's got a pair of eyes and nose and no mouth. Because there is something about disaffected youth. There is something here about disenfranchised youth who don't have a voice and have to use this kind of form of uh, sort of calligraphy of design across the city in order to make their mark, to have their voice heard. So there is something there that has a social root to it. Um, Paul, you've only been in Melbourne for a short time. It must be quite a different mindset being in Melbourne rather than in London or in UK generally. Yeah. How are you finding it? I'm enjoying yeah. it. I'm enjoying it. I, Melbourne's said to be the most European of Australian cities. Yes. It's very green. The people are very friendly. I feel very comfortable here. I find the university a great place to be. I, I love its sense of, of bold fearlessness uh, and, and, its, and, its sort of, and the sanity that it has as well. I really enjoy that combination. Um, and um, I'm just getting to know it. Uh, I enjoy the, the, the vitality of the city. I've got some great collections. The NGV collection is just to die for. Um, Acker looks fantastic, and some of the smaller galleries I'm getting to see now. So, yeah, it has a great buzz, and I'm enjoying every minute of it. Paul, look, thank you so much for coming in today. Um, it's been a pleasure. I think you've done so much. It's actually very difficult <laughs> getting it all in. So um, thank you so much for coming in today. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciated it. You've been with Stephen Crafty, Talking Design, RMIT University in Melbourne.